This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. Because all of the young soldiers had like new cars and Mustangs and they went to lunch all the time. And they're always like, yeah, Adam's like the poor cheap guy. Um, and finally, we hit $100,000 when I was 24 that we had saved. And so he started telling all of his coworkers, he's like, yeah, I don't need a lot out a lot, but I have $100,000. And I was like, no, you can't tell people that. He's like, but then they're really curious, like how we've done that. dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're talking about becoming a foster parent. On any given day, there are nearly 438,000 children in foster care in the U.S., almost a half a million kids. That is a major issue in our country, and some parents are taking action to help. Today, we're chatting with Jillian Johnsrud on why she and her husband decided to become a foster parent to four children, in addition to becoming parents to two biological kids. We're also going to discuss the financial and emotional ramifications of that major, major family decision. Jillian writes at the popular Montana Money Adventures blog, and her story of family financial independence has been featured in Business Insider, Market Watch, and on multiple highly rated podcasts. And I'm thrilled to have her on this podcast. Welcome to the show, Jillian. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jillian... I just wanted to talk to you about foster care in general. So why are there so many children in foster care in this country? This is just some, this is a statistic that I was not aware of until, until I started to look into it. Why, why do you think there are so many children in foster care in the U.S.? Well, kids come into foster care if, if their home environment isn't safe. So either there's been neglect, there's been abuse, there's been trauma, or there's just instability where the parents can't take care of the kids at that moment. And foster care is really designed to keep the kids safe, but also to provide those birth parents an opportunity to make the life changes that they need to make and hopefully be reunited with their kids. I love it. And and usually the, the process, if there was a, um, you know, a reunition or that's not a word reuniting, um, how long would that potentially take, I guess, if they, they had to go into foster care and then they maybe would be reunited? I guess that, that maybe that varies quite a bit. So there is federal legislation that tries to keep the process no longer than 18 months. Um, five years ago, 10 years ago, when we first started adopting, it would end up where kids would end up in foster care for three years, five years, 10 years before the state either reunited them or severed their birth parents' parental rights. Mm -hmm. And finally, the government said, this is not good for kids. Like, for them to live in limbo for a decade, like, almost their whole childhood. So now they try to put caps on it. As soon as the birth parents are able to be reunited, that'll happen as soon as that's possible. But if the birth parents aren't showing any progress at 18 months, uh, the state really needs to start moving towards 
parental rights being terminated and just finding a safe, permanent home for that kiddo. Yeah. And it's not always, uh, you know, small children that are in foster care. Like in my brain, I was always thinking, oh, it's young, young children that the, you know, the parents couldn't take care of the child and then they're, you know, they're, they're in foster care, but it's really, you know, I've heard the average age is seven. So um, it sounds like that's, that's the case for a lot of kids, no matter what age they are. Yeah. Seven is a pretty common age for kids to enter foster care the first time. Um, You know, if there's, if there's trouble at home with a two-year-old or three-year-old, Oftentimes it doesn't get caught, you know, unless a nurse reports something or they show up maybe at a WIC office and someone reports. Oftentimes kids, you know, zero to five live very private lives with their families. And if there's a lot of abuse and turmoil, oftentimes those parents don't take their kids out as much. So kids really start to enter the foster care system with elementary school. You know, they go into kindergarten and first grade, and the teachers are really kind of that first line of saying, wait a minute, like, hmm. something's not right here. Something's going on at home. We need to we need to make sure this kiddo's safe. Wow. Well, I, I appreciate you giving me a background there. It's something I'm, I'm learning and I'm, I'm new to. So let's talk a little bit about your situation uh, becoming a foster parent. So why did you decide that becoming a foster parent was, was for you? I had always loved... The idea. Um, actually, even as a teenager, I just felt like one of the greatest gifts that you could give a child or any other human being was a safe and loving and supportive family. I saw my friends that had really safe, loving, supportive families. And I was like, wow, I would do anything to have that. Like, that's the greatest privilege that, that a person can have. And I just thought if I could give that to someone, like, that would be incredible. Um, so actually, on my very first date with my husband, I was like, so how do you feel about adoption? And he was like, you know, I really love the idea of adoption. And I was like, okay, check. Um, how do you feel about adoption from foster care? And he said, I love that. My His parents had actually become foster parents after all their kids had moved out of the house. And so we had had a few foster siblings. Um, and he, he really loved that idea too. And I was like, okay, check next question. Um, so it was kind of, he jokes, it was like the most romantic interview that he's ever had. Um, cause I just went through my little list of questions, but that was, it was a big priority for me. That's incredible. And, it, and that's, um, Talk about having these serious conversations on the first date. That is the way to go. I mean, we talk a lot on the show about the the financial conversations to have early on. That is a very important one. Not only not only is that a financial conversation, it's a it's a family conversation. It's a life conversation. You want to make sure you're spending time with uh, somebody that aligns with your values. So that's great. Um, so what did you guys do to prepare? So it sounds like you're both on 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 board for the first date. Then you get married, and then when did you make the decision to have your your first foster child come home? So our first son we adopted uh, was Micah, and we actually, while that was a big part of our plan, we weren't ready, and we weren't in the process. We weren't even thinking about it, really. We had only been married about a year and a half, um, two years, but it was... Adam's um, foster brother. And so we had met him a couple times and he was becoming available for adoption. He had been in foster care for seven years and his caseworker called us and 
caseworkers are usually very um, cantankerous, uh, but dedicated staff members. And she was like, okay, listen, here's the deal. Um, I've called everyone. I've called all of his birth family. I've called all of his distant relatives. I know the families that I have that are up for adoption. Nobody's going to take this kid. So you're my last call. So and he was 11 at the time. So she said, so yeah, either you can adopt him or I'm going to put him in a group home and he'll just age out. And I was like, he's 11. He's 11. Like he'll never live with a family. Like he'll never be adopted. She's like, no, no, I just won't be able to place him. He's a boy. He's type one diabetic. He's a lot of behavior issues. He has education issues. He's never going to get adopted. So yeah, you think about that and just give me a call back. And I was like, Oh, okay. So we went away for actually for my 21st birthday. We went away for the weekend and we were like, are we going to do this? Like we didn't feel prepared. We didn't feel prepared in our marriage. We didn't feel prepared as humans. Like I was 21. I wasn't like, yeah, I could totally raise a teenager. Like that's in my wheelhouse. Um, But I thought maybe we're better than nothing. Absolutely. So we started the process. We It took about a year of going through classes and getting licensed. Um, and then Micah came to live with us right after I turned 22. Wow. Yeah, that's very early on in the marriage too, to, um, you know, you guys are just getting used to each other probably at that time, let alone becoming parents, especially foster parents. So what were some of the conversations you guys were having? I mean, uh, early on in your marriage uh, to, to make this happen? I think it helped that that was always part of the plan. Yeah. You know, we just, we were so passionate about the topic. Um, so although it felt like a little too soon, um, we said, you know what, this was the plan. So let's, let's jump in. It was almost, I think more like when couples get married and then they uh, find out they're pregnant a little bit sooner than they had planned, <laughs> you know, kind of like that first year they're like, oh, well, it was going to be part of the plan. I guess it's part of the plan right now. Um, and you just kind of roll with it. That's cool. That's cool. So walk us through the foster care adoption process then, because that's very foreign to me. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people, um, it's not as easy as just going in there. Yep. Okay. We'll come on home probably. I mean, what, what, what happens? Yeah, it's a long process. So especially when you're adopting through or fostering through the state, you're working with a government agency. And this is something that's important to consider if you love the idea of adoption, but you really want like this glamorous, wonderful adoption experience, uh, the state does not provide that. <laughs> like you can go through a private agency and, you know, adopt a baby and it's about $25,000. But if you really want to help kids that really need a family, it's a little rough and tumble. Um, so you call up and you say, hey, I'm kind of interested. And they have classes and it's usually like, They might do an intensive over two weekends or they might stretch it out over 10 weeks, but it's kind of mandatory training. And that's really your first step is just to go through the class. And there's no commitment. The class is a little bit, um, a little bit really good training for parents in general and a little bit shock and awe. Like, here's what you're going to deal with. And they want you, as you go through the process, to be honest with yourself. Like, is this something we want to do? is this the right fit for us? And the class is really where you figure that out, mm. whether this is going to work or not. And if if you go through the class and you're like, oh, wait, we're way in over our heads. This is not the right fit. 
um, everyone's super supportive and encouraging of you making that decision because they want families who are in a good spot. But you'll also learn that there's lots of other opportunities to support the foster care system and not necessarily be full-time foster parents or adoptive parents. A lot of people do respite care where kids come for a weekend or a week. Um, when kids are in foster care, they're not allowed to leave the state or the city oftentimes without permission. So if you have a family emergency, if someone passes away and you have to go home for a funeral, you can't bring your foster kid. Hmm. So they need some place to go for that weekend or that week. And that's where respite um, foster families help out. Some people just do emergency placements, you know, that phone call in the middle of the night of we just pulled this kid from a meth house and like he needs a place to sleep right now. And they help that kid get settled in for a week or two while they find a foster family that really is a great fit for him. Um, so you go through the class and then they start licensing you, which is, um, oh, it's like the most awkward, invasive personal interview you will ever experience in your life. <laughs> they will ask you questions that you're like, no other human has ever asked me this, nor have I wanted them to ask me this. It's really, um, it's really invasive and personal. And they're just trying to figure out if you're a good fit, but also your strengths and weaknesses so that they can match the right kid with you. No parent's perfect. Um, and they're just trying to figure out where, yeah, where that is and how they need to help support you. Um, my husband actually licensed families for foster care. It was one of his jobs for a couple of years. And I always apologize to the families that he licensed. Like, I'm so sorry. This is going to be bad. Um, he'll try to make it as, like, like, the smallest amount of pain as possible. But it's a really awkward situation. Um, and then after you get licensed, you get to kind of decide, like, what are you looking for? Um, they're, they're really honest um, in the process of what can you handle and what can you not handle. We'll give you like a whole sheet of behaviors, like things that kids might do. And you say, yes, I can handle this or no, I can't. Yes, I can deal with this or no, I can't. And then they'll start to match you. Some parents just want to do adoption. So they'll say, here are all the kids that are available for adoption. At any time in the U.S., there's about 100,000 kids in foster care that parental rights have been terminated. They're ready and free. They're just waiting, They're just waiting for someone to show up and say, yeah, I think maybe I can do that. Um, or if you want to be a foster parent and just be open to adoption, then they'll, they'll put you on a list of people to call as they call kids from homes or as kids disrupt, which means that the current foster family wasn't able to take care of them and they need to find them a new foster family. Um, yeah, the whole process, you're really looking at at least a year hmm. from the time you make the phone call till the time that a kiddo shows up in your house. So I encourage people like just to make the first phone call because it's going to take a long time anyways. Right. Could, can you tell me the difference between, and I think I get it, but I want to understand the major difference between uh, typical adoption and then foster care. So typical adoption, they're coming from where and foster care, they're coming from where. And obviously there's financial ramifications for either one. Could you, could you help me break that down a little bit? Yeah. So in typical adoption, the birth parent has chosen to sever their parental rights and they're willingly 
going to um, place their child for adoption through an agency. And typically that's a baby, although occasionally it is, there are older kids, but that's fairly rare. Okay. Um, the cost is usually about twenty dollars to $25,000 through private adoption. Um, and part of this, honestly, is kind of supply and demand. Um, a whole bunch of people want that perfect baby to come home. And there's a line out the door for people who want or who would be willing to take just this beautiful, brand new, fresh baby. Um, and so private agencies charge for your home study, they charge for those classes, they charge for all of the licensing to match uh, birth families with um, adoptive families. And you might wait for a birth family to pick you a year to seven years because there's a huge demand. Um, there's all these you know, adoptive families just lined up waiting and not that many babies coming up for adoption. So in foster care, the state has typically forcibly removed kids from their birth families because of abuse, neglect, trauma. Um, and the birth family typically is not happy about this. They did not sign up for this. No matter, no matter what they did to their kids, they typically are very upset that the government has come into their home and said, you're not good enough. Mm. We're going to give your kid to someone who we think is better than you. Um, and that's how you start that relationship with the birth family. Wow. Um, and so it's usually a little hostile at first um, because they feel a tremendous amount of shame. They've made some really bad choices and you're their replacement. Hmm. Um, and, and it takes a while to kind of fix and heal that relationship. But we have a great relationship with our kiddos birth mom. So it's totally possible. Um, but because there are 400,000 kids in foster care and so few people want to be foster parents. The state covers your classes and they cover your licensing and they cover the paperwork and the training and all of that. They absorb that cost because these kiddos are their responsibility to keep safe. Wow. Um, and so the biological parents do they have the ability then, you, I think you said there was an 18-month window, right, where they could decide or, or get themselves back in a situation where they're able to, you know, have the kids home. Is that right, 18 months? Yeah. So the, the state's first priority is to try to reunite them with their biological family. That's not always possible. Um, and then their second option is to try to reunite them with other biological families. So grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, they're going to call and they're going to see who in this group is qualified. And sometimes there's amazing people that would can totally take care of the kid and then that kid is going to go live with them. Sometimes these problems of abuse and addiction um, are generational so sometimes the whole biological family is just barely keeping their own heads above water mm. um, and they can't take on another kiddo, especially if one has special needs or is struggling. Um, so then the first person, the third person that they're going to look at to ask to adopt would be typically the foster family. Okay. So how old are your kids today? Uh, you've got um, now um, five children. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, 
Our youngest is a biological kiddo. He is two. And then I've got a five-year-old and a six-year-old and a nine-year-old that are a sibling group that we adopted. And then I have an 11-year-old who's my biological child. Excellent. So the the five, six, and nine-year-old, um, you said you have a good relationship with their their, or their biological parents. That's that right? Yeah, with their biological mom. Biological mom. Okay. So what what is the interaction then uh, after they've been a part of your world for a long time and, and with that biological mom? So with, with foster care adoption, after the parental rights are severed and you legally adopt the kids, those biological parents have absolutely no rights to their children. They're guaranteed no access. There's no such thing as like a mandatory open adoption for foster care. It's entirely up to the adoptive parents to decide what they want that relationship to look like. Um, And really it's just what's best for the kids. And each kid is different and each biological parent is different. And, And oftentimes it depends on the kids' ages. Sometimes when they're teenagers, they have really strong opinions about how and how frequently they want to interact with their birth parents. And they might say, never. Our, our oldest um, was like, I will never speak of my biological mom again. Hmm. I'll never speak to her. I will never visit her. If she tries to communicate with me, no. And it was like off, off limit conversation in our house. Like she was never to be discussed. And he was a teenager. And I was like, you know what? That's your choice. Like you get to decide who you want in your life and who you don't. Um, and you have the right to change your mind. Yeah. So those first couple of years, you know, with your, your five, six and nine year old, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's gotta be a transition process, right? That initially you are not their mother and then you become their mother. So what were some of those early times like together when you were, I guess, transitioning into the mode of mom? It's overwhelming at first. Um, this kiddo, um, our, the oldest of the set was dropped off first. And I literally mean like dropped off. I was actually at a job interview and the, so the caseworker called my husband and my husband came home and she dropped him off in my living room and I walked home and then there was this five-year-old staring back at me and I was like, hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> um, and it's so weird. Like, you're like, and now I'm your parent. Um, some foster parents have this, like, like they instantly fall in love with each kid right out of the gate. It feels a little bit more like an arranged marriage to me. Like, <laughs> oh, hi, now we're in love and we're going to be living together. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Tell me a bit about yourself. Um, and you slowly get to know them. And that's one of the beautiful things about adoption, especially through foster care, is they have all of these behaviors. They have all of these things that, from from abuse or neglect or trauma that they bring with them, and it makes them act out in really weird ways. And it's hard to see who they really are because those behaviors are covering up kind of their identity. But slowly, very slowly sometimes over time, those behaviors fall away. And they realize they don't need these behaviors anymore. Like they had done it to keep themselves safe, but it's not necessary. And you get to, you get to know them. You get to see like the real them. And it's like, 
they're becoming who they were always meant to be. Hmm. And it's just such a beautiful, fun process to be like, oh, wait, you're, you're smart. Like, I had no idea. Like, you're actually really smart. Or, oh, my gosh, you're actually really funny. Like, I had no idea you were so funny. Um, and you get to just see their personality and, you know, the person that they were always supposed to be starts to shine through. So that, uh, at that time, so you've had these three children for four years now, if I'm doing my math correctly. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So I, I, I get it now. That's incredible. Okay. Well, thank you very much for sharing that background. And I know that there are, um, there's a lot that goes into raising, uh, five children. Um, when you are, you know, a young parent or anybody really that's raising five children, I understand minimalism has been a big part of your life to help out in this process. How have you adopted that as a parent? And I guess just generally for your life. Yeah. When my kiddos came, like I said, they don't, they don't come all by themselves. So my kiddos came with a CASA worker and a caseworker and a whole team of therapists and a birth family and 12 appointments a week. And I was so overwhelmed. And then you have this kiddo who's very dysregulated and has all these behaviors. And it was just so hard. So I dubbed our first year a year of easier, not harder, like any way I could make our life easier. I was going to do that. And that's really where minimalism started to make a lot of sense to me. We, we got rid of like half of our possessions, but we also changed our schedule and we changed our routines and we changed the activities that our kids did and our relationships because we didn't have space for all of it. Um, and we had to really just pick the stuff that was important to us and that was high value. Yeah, I understand you you got rid of a lot of things, but you also got rid of a lot of debt early on in your in your marriage as well. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, when me and my husband first got married together, we had $55,000 of debt. Um, and it was really discouraging because we had all these dreams. I wanted to adopt and I wanted to travel and I really wanted to pay cash for a house. And I just didn't see how that was going to be possible because we had all this debt. So... You know, we we made some kind of hard, kind of different choices. My husband joined the military, and that paid off his student loan debt. And we, I had medical debt, and he had credit card debt. But in the first two years, we were able to pay all of that off um, before Micah came. So it was a huge relief just to have that taken care of and to feel like we had a little bit more flexibility and breathing room with this new kiddo. Um, but it is one of the great things the two groups of kids in the U.S. who have the hardest time getting placements are sibling groups and older kids. A lot of families are like, yeah, maybe I could take like one kid if they're two. Like, maybe I could add a two-year-old to my family, but not a lot feel confident that they could handle a teenager or like three kids. Like the thought of adding three kids is a little overwhelming. So those sibling groups have a really hard time getting placements. But one of the great things about adopting an older kid was that he was already at school Hmm. um, and he wasn't potty training and he wasn't, I didn't have to get him dressed in the morning or make him a sandwich. Like he had a few of those life skills. And so it wasn't disruptive even that much to our careers. You know, he went to school all day and then he did an after school program for an hour and then we came home. 
and my husband was off on the weekends and he was off on the weekends and it just worked out. So one of the bonuses of adopting, you know, an older kid is that it might not have as large of a financial cost Mm -hmm. um, to you. Where for us adopting three little kids, I quit my job. I mean, it was just like it disrupted our entire life to a much larger extent. Wow. So when you when you quit your job, um, your husband was working where at the time? Then you said he was in the Army, and, and where was he at that point? So we were in Montana, and he was already licensing families for foster care. Oh, okay. So he was kind of already working in that, in that community. Um, so it was... It was nice in that we have a lot of training um, in fostering and we're really involved in the fostering community. So that was great. But it was a hard fit in that he did that all day at work and then he came home and did the exact same thing at home. And so his entire life felt a little bit like, um, you know, kids in transition who have disruptive behaviors. And that is a lot. That is a lot. Well, you know, you you talked about um, paying off your debt and then and then saving up enough money to buy a home with cash. Uh, you know, while you're making all these transitions, while you're staying at home with the kids, the, the young kids to raise them. I mean, I I have talked about my my story of my wife and I paying fifty thousand dollars off of, of debt within twelve months, but we were making you know uh, maybe like just a little bit over six figures. So yay for us, right? I mean, it sounds like your situation. If you're staying at home and he's working as a, a you know foster in a, in the foster care system, that doesn't sound like a six figure job. Like what what kind of income are you guys making? when you were paying off all this money and buying a home outright, this sounds like some incredible savings ability is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> we combined, we never made six figures. Um, even when my husband was in the army, if we counted like the healthcare and the housing, like all of the benefits, we might've had one year where we got close to 80, but we averaged about 50, $60,000 a year combined. Um, you know, I worked for Starbucks. He was, enlisted in the army like he never broke like e4 which is not a lot of not a lot of income um but we committed when we first got married to living on half of our income and we just said you know whatever half is we'll we'll just live on one salary and we'll figure it out um and it was hard in the army um because it's tough for you know a private to support a family just on their income. But I was like, you know, other people are doing it. It's not impossible. It's just really difficult. And so we made some, some choices that other people didn't really want to make. Um, so even when we had Micah, actually after we had our first biological child, we had a roommate that entire time. We rented a house and we had a roommate and we lived in the DC area. So we got a really good housing stipend and rent for a single room was pretty high. And that one choice helped us save an extra $25,000 over those years. So we, we were always able to save my entire salary. And, and as my husband made a little bit more money, as he would get promoted and years of service, we were able to save, you know, mine plus 10% of his or 20% of his. And it, yeah, it was, it was one of those things that he got teased a lot at work because all of the young soldiers had like new cars and Mustangs and they went to lunch all the time. And they're always like, yeah, Adam's like the poor cheap guy. Um, 
And finally, we hit $100,000 when I was 24 that we had saved. And so he started telling all of his coworkers, he's like, yeah, I don't need a lot out a lot, but I have $100,000. And I was like, no, you can't tell people that. He's like, but then they're really curious, like how we've done that, because especially in the army, you kind of wear your pay right on your outfit. Mm. Um, and so it's really easy to see what everyone else is making. And anytime there's, an, anytime there's an anomaly, it's pretty interesting because all of his coworkers had credit card debt, were flat broke, had car loans, and we were slowly starting to build wealth. We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsors. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. And use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Let's jump back into the show. Incredible. So... I understand that you have now achieved financial independence uh, as of as of late. Uh, wh- when did that happen? And then can you tell us how, how you did that? I mean, obviously, there's some of the things we're talking about already have helped, but what ways did you grow enough income to make that possible? Yeah, so we hit financial independence when I was 32. Um, he's, my husband's five years older, so he was 37. 
Um, and it was a combination of he was medically retired from the Army at 10 years. So we had a smaller pension because he didn't get to do the full 20 years. But that was about fourteen fifty. Um, when we we so we had saved that hundred thousand dollars. We invested that in the stock market, and it became two hundred fifty thousand dollars plus some additional contributions. Um, so when we moved back to the U.S. We bought our house for cash, and we were able to buy two rental properties. So we also have about twelve fifty in rental income that we get a month, and then we still had investments. So like right now our investments are about 250 um, that we can pull that 4% from. But because we don't have any debt, we don't have a mortgage, we don't have car payments, our monthly expenses typically are under $2,000 a month. That's incredible. Um, we just, and we travel a ton. We travel typically six to 10 weeks a year with our kids. Um, so we have an amazing lifestyle. We live in Montana and it's so beautiful. We live right outside Glacier National Park. So we go to the lake and we go hiking and we have amazing hiking trails. Like I'm staring at them, staring at them out my window. They're like three miles behind our house. And it's just, it's an easy place to have an amazing lifestyle and not actually spend any money on it. That's incredible. So when you are having these adventures and, and spending time in Montana and you know, and um, having the freedom that you now have, are you speaking to your kids about the importance of, you know, getting rid of your debt and having financial independence? Is this a, is this a common conversation at, in, in your home? Yeah, we talk to our kids a lot about money. <laughs> um, partly, we, we want them to recognize that our situation is very unique, and it's because of all these choices that we made, um, and that they can make similar choices and hopefully have similar outcomes. Like, if they like this lifestyle we're leading, there are logical steps to take to move in that direction. Um, but we kind of have a system like from from like two to four is when we teach our kids how to work because kids are not born with the knowledge of how to work. So like we give them little tasks like wiping down the table with a baby wipe. Um, and usually we give them like a little treat because they don't fully understand money at that point. So they get like a little piece of candy or get to watch some cartoons. And then right around five to about seven, eight, we start giving them jobs and we let them earn money and we let them save money and give money and um, spend their money. They have like total control over spending their own money. So they have to figure out like what they value and what's important and what was a good purchase. We have a lot of conversations around that. And then when they turn 10 um, and they've successfully learned how to work and learned how to earn money, they get to start investing. So we match their earnings um, with a, an extra $1,000 gift that they can invest in a Roth IRA. Um, so they have little businesses. They sell duck eggs when we had ducks. We have rental properties, so we can hire them to help us with our rental properties, doing like simple, um, like we did a big renovation on one of ours and one of our kids came and helped us lay laminate flooring. So, cause it works better if you have a laminate flooring helper. <laughs> um, but that's a job that like a nine year old can do. Um, so we give them opportunities to save money, but I want them to start investing early, not so much for even the compound interest, but just that introduction to the world of investing 
I think most people, the hardest part is starting, yeah. setting up your first account and like putting money in and then riding the ups and downs. So my 11 year old, we started investing last October and his money was growing and growing and growing and he was so excited. And then this October, it went back to last October's level. And he's like, wait, wait, what? What do you mean? It just all disappeared. And I was like, yeah, that's what happened. But he's like, and now it's going to start going back up. But you still but have the same amount of shares, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want like that first time for him to learn that lesson when he's making a hundred thousand dollars and he's like investing twenty thousand a year and then is like, oh, this is horrible and pulls it all out. I would rather him go through a number of market cycles before he hits twenty five. I love that you're sharing those uh, those lessons with them, not just doing it on their behalf, but coaching them, having them understand the process, because I think that's a big difference. If you want to build wealth for the next generation, you know, teaching them how to do it as opposed to doing it for them is, is going to be crucial. So we talked a lot about uh, becoming a foster parent today. You know, there's somebody listening right now that's thinking, you know what, I I think I'm interested. What is the first thing that they should do uh, if they are interested? The first practical step is just to call your local child protective service office and say, Hey, I'm kind of interested. Like what are, when are those classes? I hear there's classes. Where do I sign up for those? Um, Cause you'll learn so much through the classes, but if you don't feel like you're at that step, I would go to adopt us kids. Um, they have about, they typically have a couple thousand kids that are available for adoption that they have permission to share their photos and their stories um, and just see what kids are out there. You know, once you kind of get to you get to see their names and you get to see their faces and hear a little bit of their story, it kind of helps people visualize like, hmm, wonder if those kids could be part of our family. Um, the, the best question to ask is, is really, are we a great family for a foster kid? Like, do we want to be a good family for a foster kid Um, versus we want an amazing kid for our family? Hmm. And the difference between those questions is huge because it's, it's kind of an unfair burden to put on a kid. Um, If you're like, I just want a kid who's like going to love me and appreciate me and help fix my marriage and make our whole lives better. Um, well, this poor kid has like been abused or neglected, um, has had a lot of trauma in their life. And like, they might not be up to the task of making your life awesome right off the bat. Um, and it's kind of an unfair burden to put on them. But if you're like, we can be a safe place for these kids, we can, we can provide some love and some structure and some support. And if you're excited about that aspect, then you might be a great fit. I love it. Where can people follow you and connect with you more, Jillian? Yeah, on my website, the best way to keep in touch is through my newsletter. Um, and you can sign right up on the homepage of my site. I have a ton of free resources. I have some really great conversation sheets that might be a good first step. It kind of goes through some of my mentoring questions, and you can just print them out, take them on a date or on a car ride, and talk through them with your spouse to start to see, is this something that we want to consider? Like, does this fit into the life we're trying to build? Um, And yeah, you can always, any email I send, you can hit reply and it comes right to my inbox and I try to answer every single one. So if you have questions, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me because I always reply to my newsletters. 
Excellent. Well, everybody, if you enjoy minimalism, financial independence, and family, then uh, connect with Jillian because you're going to learn a lot. Thank you so much, Jillian. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me on. This was an extremely eye-opening interview for me with Jillian. I really knew little to nothing about the foster care process and how it was different from adoption, really. Jillian proved to me that foster parenting takes a big heart and a whole lot of patience, but it appears that Jillian wouldn't have it any other way. She lives for her family and takes pride in giving her kids a life of love, support, and adventure that they wouldn't have had without her and her husband. Their financial victories are a whole nother story, man. So impressive. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Jillian Johnsrud. Number one, create your own year of easier. I loved Jillian's year of easier plan with five kids, busy jobs, and the hustle and bustle of life. Jillian said, something has to change to make this life possible. She adjusted her activities. She modified family routines and eliminated things that didn't bring the utmost joy for her family. Take some time this week to think about this for your life. What daily or weekly process can you modify or eliminate to make your life easier? Are you signed up for too many kids' activities? You know, Nicole and I talk about that a lot. Sometimes we get excited about, and when I say we, it's really me. I get excited about signing the kids up for a bunch of stuff, and then we sort of reassess, you know, where we are. Are we still having fun with this? Is Zoe still having fun? Are, are we running around crazy? You know, some of those activities, some of those conversations really help us to um, center our our joy, try to reduce the stress. So even toys, are there, are there too many toys taking over your house? You know, sometimes the mental capacity that it takes for a kid to realize how many toys they have and how many they need to clean up, you just feel like you're constantly cleaning <laughs> because you have so many things. What can you do to organize, reduce this, um, these types of activities. So, you know, analyzing the kids' activities and, and cleaning the amount of toys that are in our kids' lives could really make a big difference. I mean, these small, small things could really make a big difference in our, in our daily lives. And it kind of reminds me of our conversation last week with uh, Pete Makaitis about updating our processes at work to make our lives more enjoyable. Think about what you could do to create some more joy relaxation, and time for you and your family. Number two, reduce your living expenses. Jillian and her husband lived on 50% of their income for quite a while to achieve financial independence. Fire, fire. And that may sound a little difficult to fathom for for some of us, or most of us, (laughs) but with practice, we can do a lot of things. That sound incredibly difficult. (laughs) Take a look at your overall expenses and see what you can reduce that won't affect your joy. Can you go with a high deductible insurance plan because you got that good emergency fund saved up? That could create some room. Could you trim back on the groceries by shopping with a list each week? What debt can you work hard to eliminate from your life? And then you can increase your savings. 
set aside some time to look at the monthly expenses, you know, laid out in um, something like Mint or a spreadsheet-based system like Tiller, and you'll be able to find and discover some easy, non-joy-killing ways to reduce your expenses. Number three, build your passive income. While Jillian was living on that 50%, she was building her passive income portfolio by investing in real estate and the stock market. So my friends, as you're reducing your expenses, like we just talked about, think of ways you can increase your investments. Building up your investments will take time and patience, but it pays in the long run. They are now set with the amount of income they need to live their simple life in Montana, their life of adventure, their life of family. So some of your decisions today can influence your ability to reach financial independence in the future. So those are my top three takeaways, everyone. Create your own year of easier. Number two, reduce your living expenses. And number three, build your passive income. Financial independence and family, man. That's what the show is all about. And Jillian's story fits it perfectly. As you can tell, guys, I have lost my voice. <laughs> um, my, my voice in the interview sounds a little different from right now as I'm recording this. But um, the show must go on. So I appreciate you guys <laughs> hearing super deep voice Andy for a little bit. Oh, so... One thing about the um, the foster care side of things, there is a new movie out called Instant Family, and it's out in theaters right now. It's got 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it looks really funny and uplifting. So I'll throw that trailer in the show notes, everybody, and hey, it could make for a great date night. Now it's time to announce the Money Master of the Week. My son, Calvin, four-year-old guy, had a huge win last week. Calvin saved up $8 from doing his chores over the past few months, and he donated it to a local charity of ours called Say Detroit. It is a charity that helps the neediest in Detroit. He said he wanted to help kids eat food and give people roofs. <laughs> give people doors, too, I think he also said. And Say Detroit does just that. Uh, after Calvin made his donation, he received a letter from the founder of Say Detroit. This is the best-selling author and Detroit Free Press columnist, Mitch Album. Yeah, Mitch Album wrote him a letter, so uh, I was kind of blown away. So I'm gonna grab I'm gonna grab the letter, and it says, "Dear Calvin, I am writing to thank you for donating the money you saved for four months to Say Detroit." Wow. What a special boy you are. As your parents probably told you, Say Detroit is a charity that helps people. That you are already thinking about how important it is to be there for others, especially at age four. Well, it tells me that your parents are special people as well. Thanks, Mitch. I'm enclosing a book that I just wrote. It was distributed at our charity book launch last month. It will be fun for you to read when you're older. He included the new book that he's got, uh, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven. It's a follow-up to The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Great book. I read that one. All my best to you today and in the years ahead. Happy holidays to your family, your friend, Mitch Album. Signed, Mitch Album. I was just blown away when I got this. It was, <laughs> it was cool. I'm a, I'm a Mitch Album fan, so... Um, 
He's a, uh, a very good person for the Detroit community, obviously very successful author, very successful columnist, and just a stand-up guy, a philanthropist, somebody that I admire. So I'm really proud of my boy. Uh, he's he's learning the importance of generosity and giving back, and it's it's a it's a process that I'm I'm learning with him. We're doing it together. I'm I'm learning a lot and getting inspired to increase my charitable giving as well. That's something that I have as a goal for myself. I've got a really cute picture of Calvin with the letter that he that he got from from Mitch Album and his give jar. I'll put it in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Calvin, thank you so much for being a generous boy, and congratulations for being our Money Master of the Week, my boy. (laughs) Do you have a recent financial victory that you want to share on the show? Email me at andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com or leave me a voicemail at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. I would love to hear from you guys. And this can be personal victories, like you paid off uh, your student loans or you got a raise at work or you're working with your kids on being more generous or you know creating a chore and reward system for them. All sorts of fun things about building your family wealth and creating that legacy to live on. You'll find all the links and resources for today's show at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 109, including that adorable picture of my boy with his letter. <laughs> a quick announcement before we go today. I'm so bummed that my voice is like this because this is such a big deal. So I'm going to try to get my excitement to when I tell you guys this announcement. I'm really excited about it, and I hope you guys join me. I'm creating a fun way for the marriage, kids, and money community to give back this holiday season. I am calling it Big Tip Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big Tip Tuesday. Here's how it goes. Number one, choose a random Tuesday during November or December during the holidays. Number two, go to a place where someone in the service industry is working hard during the holidays to make money for you know, to, to buy, buy gifts for their families or to pay off debt, whatever they're doing. They're there. They're working hard or they're just simply trying to make ends meet. You know, for example, go to a diner in a working class neighborhood, a coffee shop, or even just like your local sandwich shop. And then number three, buy something for yourself. I mean, it could be a cup of coffee, some small or whatever your lunch and leave a very generous tip. Then the size of that tip is up to you. You decide what generous means. Similar to the uh, giving challenge that we did last year, Nicole and I are going to go give twice because it's it's fun. And the reason we are doing this is Rockstar Finance, a great website you guys got to check out, rockstarfinance.com, has donated $100 to this Big Tip Tuesday challenge, which is awesome. So that's our first $100 that's a part of this excitement. And then the Hill family is going to give another $100. So after after you decide what your generous tip is, you, number four, you, you get a receipt you get the receipt for your, you know, your service that, that you were given right on the receipt, hashtag big tip Tuesday, and leave them a note of gratitude for their service and just wish them a happy holiday. So right on the receipt and then take a picture of that if you wouldn't mind and share that receipt on social media. Obviously, if there's any credit card information, you want to scratch that out. We don't want to have any trouble. <laughs> so you share that on social media hashtag big tip Tuesday and then contact me Andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com or voicemail marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail and tell me 
tell me how it went. Tell me if it was fun. Tell me if you got a reaction. Tell me if you didn't get a reaction. You know, that that's actually part of it. Like I, I try to do these things. Um, and this is something I'm working on knowing that I might not get, you know, some big smile or big hug. It might just be every day, uh, because, uh, they, they go about their day and they realize they got the tip later. It's like, just realize the act is important as opposed to the result of the, of the giving, you know, some sort of intrinsic, um, reward that you receive. Give, give without expecting in return. I mean, I guess that's something I'm working on. So maybe you guys can work on it with me. <laughs> anyway, I would love for our community to surprise 10 hardworking people in the service industry with a 100 bucks. And that would, so that would be a thousand dollars of joy spread to those who are working real hard during the holidays for their families or to hit their goals or just to, you know, to make, to make it through to, to next month. So what do you think? Are you guys in? I, I don't have the voice of excitement right now, but I, I just want you to know that I'm really excited about it. So tell me if you're in, please email me and let me know. Giving is so much fun. I mean, yeah, getting gifts is cool, but man, giving to your neighbors in need, giving to just people in your community that, um, that are working hard. And it's, it's, it's great. Think about the smile that you'll bring on someone's face who's not expecting it. So thank you for considering it, my friends. I think this is going to be a blast. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Maya Angelou. When we give cheerfully and accept gratefully, everyone is blessed. Let's open our hearts and our hands, everyone. Carpe diem. Oh, man, it's tough. Carpe diem. I gotta do this. Carpe diem. Ha, ha, ha.